Let me tell you about the morning I had. Here's how the day was supposed to go. I got up really early. I went to the gym. I went to therapy. I came back. I took a nice hot shower. I was supposed to sit down. It was supposed to be early, early in the morning. And I was going to have my first three-hour block of time where I was going to record one viewing of Oppenheimer for Patreon. Because today is Oppenheimer Day, and I was looking forward to putting out one whole recording early on and be done, oh, by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Easy peasy. Everything going great. And then I'd have a little bit of a break. I could have a whole lunch. I could sit and relax. Maybe I could even do some laundry. And then I'd have the chat, and then my workday would be done. I could post things up and kick back and play a video game or watch watch some TV or catch up on a podcast. It would have been a nice, relaxing day. Here's how my day actually went. I got up early. I went to the gym. I went to therapy. I came home. I took a shower. I got all cleaned up. Everything's going great. I sit down to start recording. I get going. I get about 50-something seconds in, the phone rings. And it's just a, a simple common thing. Hey, you know, don't forget to pick up your medication at the pharmacy. Great, I say. No problem. And I, I look, and I'm like, it's early though, isn't it? I mean, usually this happens next week. I don't need it this week. And they ask me who I am, and they turn out. I, I share a name with my father, and they, in their infinite uh, vast stupidity, took all my dad's meds and moved them over to my account, causing a huge mess because he's on a ton of other things for a ton of other problems with a totally different CVS and a totally different pharmacy. And now it's a whole big thing. So now I have to straighten this out. I'm supposed to be recording Oppenheimer. I'm supposed to be in the middle of a great morning. I'm supposed to be nice and calm and chill talking about a movie I love, really diving deep into it. And here I am on the phone with these chuckle fucks trying to explain to them whose pills are who and what they're supposed to be doing and why it's not easy for me to suddenly drive hundreds of miles to the other place and explain it to them and fix it. It's a nightmare. I can't stand it. But eventually, after a lot of yelling and ranting and raving and pacing around the house and being generally very, very grumpy, it gets sorted out. And that's fine. That's fine. But by the time it gets sorted out, it is like 1130 it is it is 90 minutes from the chat. I was supposed to be done the whole recording by then. And I barely got started. So I sit down and I have something to eat and I try to recompose myself. And by the time I do that, I sit down and I start recording. And the next thing I know, it's 1230. And a little bit of recording got done. I should have been done by now. But no, I go from this chat straight back to recording. And then eventually I'll be done. Threw off the whole vibe of my day. The absolute just whole mess of it. So that's where I'm at right now. And I hope you, wherever you're at, doing whatever you're doing, I hope you're doing better. There's some good questions coming up today. I'm happy to be here. I might be a little frustrated with other things, but I'm not too frustrated for you or this. And let's get started. All right. Just remember. What I've taught you.
The sound of the intro was too low. What an interesting thing that normally doesn't happen. I think I fixed it. Hang on. Let's let's move all the sliders and see what we can do. Isn't that interesting? All right. I hope that's okay. We'll find out when we do the outro. Do I sound okay though? Am I am I all right or do I need to move this up another notch? Let's try that. See if that's any better. <clears throat> So far, so good. I think we're okay. Otherwise, we will further tweak it. Okay. Are we good? I sound perfect. Well, thank you. That's very sweet of you. Okay. Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, plotters, chess enthusiasts, snackers, nap takers, anybody who can appreciate that feeling of just like my feet are cold, I'm going to put on socks or it's time to get comfortable. I'm going to totally change clothes. Anybody who can appreciate like a good warm shower or a nice warm bath, mug lovers, soup havers, uh, people who sprinkle random things on top of stuff, like just the right amount of chives and just the right amount of parsley. Uh, people who don't bother you when you know you have shit scheduled in a particular day. Anybody who's ever had to deal with just momentary frustration that's ever thrown everything all the fuck off. And most importantly, the comrades. Welcome to the Writer's Chat for November the 21st. Yeah, this is a good one. If you don't know what this is or who I am, hi, I'm John. It's nice to see you my job to help you write better. And this is the writer's chat, a collection of answers to questions asked by people from all corners of social media for all kinds of stuff to help you write better, edit better, launch a career, finish a career, market your stuff, do better creatively overall. Really super happy. Really love doing this. Got some good questions this week. And I'm looking forward to giving you some answers, plus the answers to the questions asked by those people in chat. Hello, chat. It's nice to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for keeping me company. I hope, I hope I can help you too. So on we go, shall we? Here we go. Question number one, coming, swinging right out of that gate. How do I avoid shiny new thing syndrome? The minute the victim dies or the couple meets cute, that's supposed to say cute, John, the couple meets cute, I want to jump to the next idea. How do I stop doing this? Shiny new thing syndrome is about organization. I know that sounds a little weird, but bear with me. I'll explain it. Shiny new thing syndrome is the idea that something is new and neat and cool and fun. So I'm going to move onto it. It disregards or reduces the focus on the other stuff that supports it. If you just want to write fun, single scenes disconnected from everything else, 
here's a murder scene. Here's a meet cute. Here's a, a, a joke. Here's a, here's a sex scene. Here's an action beat. Here's a climax. Here's a resolution. If you just want to write disconnected things, go ahead. There's nothing stopping you. Go ahead. But understand that while that is the act of writing and you will be a writer for doing it, you can't just publish them. I mean, yeah, I suppose you could if you had like 30 of each and you put together an anthology, but by and large, just writing disconnected, fragmented scenes isn't enough. It's not going to do anything. You need to learn that the shiny new thing gets all these other shiny things around it in order to build up to that murder, in order to build up to that climax or that sex scene or that meet cute or the resolution. It's all shiny things. The problem is that you just like this one more than the other. Over time, you've got to learn how to organize your ideas so that there's always something shiny and new, even when the scene or the idea is different. The scene right before the meet cute has a shiny thing. The scene right before that has a shiny thing. Introductions have a shiny thing. And you have to find that. And it's going to be different for every story, different in every draft, differently done by every writer. The point is there's plenty of shiny things. Don't just jump to the shiny thing that also is sort of a major critical shiny thing. It's about discipline and it's about organization. I, I, I know it's not fun all the time. I know that some scenes are just better and easier to write or they're more interesting or they're more creative or they're just, they're just better. I get it. But you need the other stuff too. And the only way you can make that stuff that you swear isn't any good, the only way to make that stuff better is to do more of them and get better at it so that there will always be shiny things and you can learn and pick and choose when exactly, you know, how we're going to get past just the, I'm going to do a thing and then have a very juvenile, ill-formed response. I did the fun thing. Okay. I'm not going to do my chores or eat my vegetables or do anything else. I just want just this one thing, just more of this thing. It doesn't work that way. There is more to a story than just the scene you like the most. And over time, learn to like all of them. It's not easy, but it's really going to help you. Discipline and organization. On we go. Question two. Why don't you believe in the characters run wild concept? If you've never heard of this, characters run wild is the name of the idea. And maybe you've seen this on social media because that's usually where this thing lives. This idea that my characters won't, you know, won't leave me alone or they won't stop talking to me or they just, they just have to have their stories out. And they're described, these made up people who exist in your imagination, these made up people are described and talked about as though they're real fully formed people like roommates or something who were always inveigling you into some kind of wacky shenanigans when golly gee, you just want to be sitting there doing the dishes. I don't agree with that because on one hand, you're, you're kind of making fun of the people who suffer from profound mental illness where they have an inability to distinguish from fantasy, from reality and things. And you're, 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 I know you're well-intentioned in saying that you're just so imaginative. 
but you're doing it in a way that is a bit dismissive to people who have a legitimate problem with the thing you're just being wacky and cute about on the internet. What this really comes down to is you have a very active imagination. And the more active your imagination with the less discipline you apply to it, the more wasteful you will be of your creativity. To use a, a not creative example here, let's suppose you have, I don't know, a farm. And in this farm, you have loads of different animals of all different kinds. You have chickens and you have sheep and you have goats and you have cows and horses and whatever else you want to have on your farm of any kind. It doesn't matter. If you don't pen those animals in, they will wander far away. You might lose some of them to just time and distance and, and predators, or they might get lost or they might wander off and you'll never find them. The same is true if you had a pet. If you just never had a space for your pet that was your pet's, your dog could wander out into traffic and get hit by a car. Your cat could be, you know, lost somewhere. You need those boundaries. That doesn't limit the farm's utility. It's there for the benefit of those creatures. It's there for the benefit of the animal you're trying to raise. Your characters are portions of your imagination and your discipline about applying them, your, your seriousness in regarding them, your ability to say, here is a time and space where I can do something with these versus here's a time and space where I have to do the dishes or I have to, you know, do these chores or I have to make this phone call or I have to do something other than my writing. That's maturity. That's part of becoming a more well-grounded writer. The ability to toggle it on and toggle it off gets easier with time. Your characters are not real beings. They might be modeled on real beings. You might really like escaping your reality into your imagination. You might like daydreaming about them, fantasizing about all this different kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. You can do that. But please stop characterizing your imagination as real because what you are revealing in that is not that you're very creative with your 22 princesses and your 75 magic kingdoms and your 3000 immortal beings, all who fall in love with each other or whatever complicated sci-fi space opera you have. You're revealing an inability to organize your thoughts. When it's all just silly, crazy, wild playtime, you are suggesting that you don't want to face life. And I, I don't blame you. Lots of parts of life suck. But this is a job. These are the tools of your job. Treat them as such. They're not humans. They're not your roommates. You made them up. You have total responsibility over them. If that sounds scary, well, yeah, it's scary to be creative. And it's scary to do more than just daydream all day. I understand. But that's the whole point of this. I have always pushed back against this undisciplined idea because you have enormous potential to do something more than just make up shit. You, you can tell a story, any story, that has an impact on someone to change their life for the better. Your story about 
two short guys who throw jewelry in a volcano or the farm boy who looks up at the stars and finds a bigger life or the guy who pulls the sword out of the rock or anything else. Your story has the ability to leave a positive impact with someone. Not just, oh, I liked it. I'm glad I gave that person $3. You can move somebody with your art. But we can't do that if we're busy having this immature imagination discussion. We're not able to work and operate on the full level to the full power of our creativity if we're sitting here talking about, oh, golly gee, my characters just won't shut up. No, you just don't want to sit down and do any work. You just want to have fun playtime all the time. And there is a time to play and a time to work. And I hate to tell you this, at some point, your work turns into play and vice versa. Your characters are not running wild. You just lack discipline. So sit down, take a deep breath, and get to work. On we go. Question three. Tell me one piece of bad writing advice and tell me how I should do different. Well, we are certainly not hurting for bad writing advice. The internet is loaded with it. But I got one for you that doesn't always get talked about as bad writing advice. We usually talk about it as good writing advice, but I hate to tell you this. It's actually bad writing device advice in disguise. And that's this. Your first draft is a vomit draft. That is good advice for some people and bad advice for others to the point where I'm willing to say it's bad enough advice for all. What a first draft does, what the point of a first draft is, is to get all of the idea out of your head and onto the page. Period. That's it. No more, no less. It does not need to be a finished book. It does not need to, you know, have these tremendous narrative devices. It does not need to be like 90% close to published. It doesn't need to carry all this mass and inertia of, look how much theme I have in here. Look, I'm saying something. Look at my metaphor. Look at my this and that. Because that's just going to paralyze you trying to make it more than what it is or holding yourself to that unrealistic standard that an amount of writing needs to be perfect. I'm making air quotes in order to be something beyond just, well, it's the first draft. I sat down and I wrote it at this level. Let's be very clear about this. No one is judging you about the quality of your first draft other than you. The reason why we relegate it down to a first draft is a vomit draft is because we want to disconnect you from the idea that your first draft needs to be a big deal. It could just be a first draft. We call it a vomit draft to lower your expectation. It doesn't need to be this grand demonstration. You don't have to prove to yourself. You don't have to prove to your editor, your coach, your publisher, your pimp. You don't have to prove to your reader that you're good enough to write the book and earn their permission to move forward in the process. That's not what this is. This is a matter of, hey, I want to write this down and I will write it all down to the best of my ability, not to demonstrate my perfection at my craft, not to get five stars on a website or two thumbs up or whatever weird bullshit metric you want to talk about. Your job is just to get the picture out of your head and then go back 
and work on it and improve it in a second draft and then go back and work on it in a third draft and then get it out the door maybe after three drafts, five drafts, ten drafts. It doesn't really matter. The point is that you just need to get it out of your head on one level and then we can work on it. It can be developed. It can be improved. It doesn't need to come out perfect. It doesn't need to come out finished. It doesn't need to come out publishable. It just needs to be more than a series of thoughts disconnected in your head. So when you sit down to do that first draft, rather than treat it as a vomit draft, rather than treat it as just this inelegant, sloppy thing you just mash together and call it a day, you don't have to do the bare minimum just because we call it something weak or negative. If vomit draft makes you feel like the bar is very low and you barely have to clear it, then don't treat it like that. But don't swing the pendulum too far the other way and say, oh, the first draft should be tremendous because this is a process that builds upward in layers. And if we're already starting up there, you're not making it easier for yourself because, oh, well, this is really only two drafts because my first draft was so perfect. Um, no, there's... No, it doesn't work that way. You don't you don't get to shortcut the publishing process because you tried and over-engineered the first draft. You still have voice, theme, tone, all these other craft things to come across in later drafts. Just turn your first draft into an exercise in getting the idea out of your head. Not perfect, not earning praise, not rewarding yourself for anything, just as a place to store the idea so that it isn't just your brain. That's, that's something I don't think we spend enough time talking about. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Anybody got anything? Anybody wondering about anything? You have a question, fire away. It's good to see you. I am doing well. I'm a little cold. Uh, I just turned the heat up. But yeah, fire away with your question. Tips for a good book cover? Yes. Let's do book cover first while uh, the other person is writing out their question. Book cover. I want you to divide the, the imagine a, a big rectangle, a page, right? Divide it into thirds. There's a top third, a middle third, and a bottom third. Most of the time, the reader is trained to look at the top third and the middle third. Don't really sweat. They look at more of one than the other. But notice that they're going to look at those top two thirds way more than the bottom two thirds. That's usually because that's where their hand goes to hold the book. Or they hold their reader or whatever. We look at the top two thirds. And of the top two thirds we tend to look towards the middle of things because we're used to stuff being centered. So if you're trying to draw someone's attention to something, aim to get the majority of the big material that you want to definitely draw their eye to aim 90 something percent of the time to put it in those top two thirds. Not so much always the set in the middle, not so much always the top, but definitely in the center, sort of in between those two thirds, you can draw reader focus. That's often why titles in book covers go there so that it can be clearly seen and expressed. 
Beyond that, you want to consider that your book cover isn't either too busy, cluttered with a million things, and hard to distinguish one thing from the next. The background's blurry or are overly artsy, and the, the title color doesn't easily stand out. But also don't go the other way and make it too bare, where it's just a single, like, single color with just text on it, because that's going to come across as lazy. And it's a missed opportunity to really engage the reader and have them set an expectation or a level of interest. Beyond that, um, do whatever the hell you want. Label it, not label it, include your name, don't include your name, have a long title, a big title, whatever you want to do. But make sure, no matter what you choose to do, you are doing something to grab the reader's attention visually. That's my best book cover advice. Here's the other question. How can I best add lighthearted moments to my YA contemporary without it feeling whimsical and out of place? That's a great question. The, the answer has to do with the degree of lightheartedness, because if you go really, really lighthearted compared to whatever the other tone is, let's say you have this, this, uh, let's, let's make it a, like a serious moment, an emotional beat, right? If that emotional beat is supposed to be serious and then all of a sudden you do something that is very, very lighthearted, like we throw in a quip or we have an action beat and then we make a sarcastic joke, the degree of difference between the lighthearted moment and the not lighthearted moment that's right next to it, the degree of difference is going to make both of them collectively weaker because the joke will undercut the tension and the tension weakens the joke. If you're worried about things being too whimsical, look at where you're positioning your lighthearted moment before you look at what the lighthearted moment is. Part of this comes down to don't overthink the lightheartedness. What's lighthearted to you if it's small and doesn't carry a lot of like attention drawing stuff, like if we're just holding hands or smiling or someone says, yeah, this food's delicious, that's not whimsical. And it's not necessarily out of place because we just had this heavy conversation and now we're settling down to have, you know, dinner together or something. You want to look at the degree of contrast between the beats, but also the type of action that it is. Because if we have a serious moment here, a dialogue beat where two people confess profound feelings, if all of a sudden, like, they're doing an action that seems very weirdly there, like we're having a serious moment and then we both grab, I don't know, we both grab musical instruments out of nowhere and just start playing. It's going to seem weird because we just had the serious moment where the, the other idea seems grossly out of place. You can weather that out of placeness by organization and whimsy is a, it's subjective. A lot of people overthink lightheartedness and B it's a degree of contrast. So when you're looking at serious thing, serious thing, serious thing, I better have some levity here. Rather than over-engineer the degree of levity, look and see what you're trying to do that is levity. Serious thing, serious thing, serious thing, joke is only going to affect the beat immediately before it. It's not going to totally undercut everything unless you really call attention to the joke. This gets situational at that point, but mostly you want to look at contrast. 
that's going to help you tame your whimsy. And as long as you're choosing within the realm of the story and you're staying within the boundaries of your story, it's not going to be out of place. Like if suddenly everybody pulls out sock puppets, yeah, then we're out of place. Especially if we're in the middle of like a like a serious Jane Austen novel. That's out of place. But whimsy is not the polar opposite of serious. Whimsy is just lacking stakes. I hope that answers the question. If not, uh, let me know and I'll follow up. Other questions, other issues, else we will march along. All right. Awesome. Awesome. I'm glad that helped. Let us, uh, let us keep moving. Question four, how can I get better at saying something? I'm a big fan of saying something without slowing down and overthinking every sentence from the beginning you're going to slow down and overthink every sentence. You're very welcome. I'm glad you both got answers to your questions. Uh, when you get started and you make an effort to really say something, whether you are trying to be profound or trying to be descriptive or trying to be clear or emotional or vulnerable, or you're trying to do more than just like tell the story at somebody's face, it's going to feel really slow. And a lot of people get very frustrated with the speed at which the story is deploying, the speed at which it's coming out of your brain and hitting the page because they feel it should be faster because they feel for some reason that the speed at which the story hits the page is somehow a reflection of their intelligence or their talent or the, the goodness or ability they have as a creative. And none of those things are true. You're just trying to do a thing seriously. You're trying to do a thing with some effort and maybe that's new to you. So yeah, it takes time. And yes, if you have an expectation as to the degree of seriousness or the degree of intensity that saying something is supposed to have, then yeah, you will overthink every sentence. It's also worth pointing out that when we're saying something, we have a point to make. We're being, you know, a bit more careful, thoughtful, and intelligent. Every sentence doesn't have to do that. It's the collective, you know. This paragraph of four sentences about, you know, angry people upset storming an office place is, you know, representative of the point we're making that, you know, your bosses should respect the will of the union and the people. But each of those four sentences in that paragraph do not need to themselves be individually profound. The collective here works out. The same is true if we were trying to paint a clear picture in the reader's mind of a character. It wouldn't be just one sentence to perfectly encapsulate the character because that's a lot of pressure to put on you to write a sentence. That's a lot of pressure to put on the sentence to be universally clear for no matter who reads it. But also, um, you have more time in space. You can absolutely take two sentences, three sentences, five sentences, six sentences, and they can all do some percentage of the total job. It, you can still say something in pieces, and it's just as effective, if not more so, than saying one thing somewhere once and then not following it up. But when you get started, when you're beginning, yeah, 
you're going to overthink. You're going to second guess. You're going to feel frustrated. But it's not a reflection of you being dumb or stupid or bad or wrong. It has nothing to do with that. That's just self-doubt. That's just uncertainty that it's going okay because you've never done it before and you're looking for reassurance and validation. There's nothing wrong with looking for reassurance and validation. I hope you have a support group around you that will provide you that reassurance and validation. But over time, you will overthink less. Not because all of a sudden every sentence will be this perfect idealized superstar thing. It's just because you will realize it's not that important that it happened literally at every word. You get to make your point across the whole book, not just one sentence, not just one chapter, not just one page, the whole thing. Give yourself a break. Don't push so hard. It'll get better over time. On we go. Question five, kind of a natural follow-up to it. Isn't it better to write faster? Why? Straight up, why? Why do you think faster is better? Because you'll be done sooner? I thought you liked writing. I thought you enjoyed the process. Oh, you want to write faster because you want to be done sooner. Because why? Because you, you want to get one step closer to the, to the reward. You want to make money. You want to sell the book. You want to be done. Because you think getting done sooner means you're better. Because people who are better at things are done sooner than other people. So it's, it's, a, it's a value judgment on yourself is what you're saying. I would be a better person if this difficult thing didn't take so long. I must be a bad person because it's taking a while. Oh, okay. Well, let's take this away from writing and pose this exact same question. In a heart transplant, it typically takes several hours to perform the procedure, and you have to be a very qualified surgeon to do it. And no matter how skilled the surgeon, it's always going to take roughly that same amount of time. Does that mean that a surgeon, if it takes, let's say, six hours to perform the procedure, the surgeon who gets it done in six hours and two minutes is better than the surgeon that where it took six hours and three minutes or six hours and 20 minutes? Isn't it possible that the factor for time isn't so much the skill of the procedure as though it's always universal, but that everybody presents a different case? Maybe somebody bled more or there were more complications or it was just harder to do. And if you're going to use, if we're going to say, well, the John, that's not writing. That has nothing to do with it. Fine. Let's make it about writing. If you're writing a children's book and it's got 25 words because it's a picture book for babies, you know, think something that you can park a baby on your lap and read to them. That's, that's going to have fewer words than your hundred thousand word space opera. Right? So the woman because typically those books are written by women. The woman who writes that children's picture book, is she better than you because she, she was able to write her 25 words way faster than your 100,000 words? Do not make the speed at which you write a value judgment about you. It is not better to write faster because it's not like we only write one draft and then we're done. And it's not like, well, it's better or faster in later drafts of my third draft, you know, should be really quick because I should be nearly done. Hey, no matter what, there's still editing to do. 
They're still revising. There's still critique. There's still revision and feedback. And then no matter how we publish it, there's still a hurry up and wait mentality, whether we send this off to have traditional publishing, take a look at it, or whether you put it out yourself, it's not like you're going to be done today and the paychecks start rolling in tomorrow. Faster is not always better. And if you're somebody who's constantly upset about it taking so long, my challenge to you is to stop and look at why. And if you're going to blame the work, you're not doing a good enough job looking at yourself because, oh, well, the book's just taking a while because the book is really dense and complicated. Okay. Why is the book dense and complicated? What are you trying to accomplish and why do you feel it's important to go fast? Because nobody cares how long it takes. A reader, when they buy the book, the, you know, the, the end stage you want to get to, when the reader buys the book, they don't stop and go, gosh, I hope they wrote this in seven months, not nine. Or I hope they did this in less than seven drafts. Nobody thinks like that. No editor, no pimp, no publisher cares. Those guys want a book they can sell because they need to profit off your labor. As a writing coach, I don't care. And I know some people will make a statement like, well, John, it's because you get paid by the hour. So if somebody takes slower, they spend more hours. That's not necessarily true. It's, and I'm not doing this just to accrue hours. I'm not running a taxi service where the meter is constantly running. I want writers to write better. The path from where you're at to your goal of what your writing better looks like is full of twists and turns, and everybody moves on that path at a different rate, not because they're intelligent or some are smarter than others or better than others. It's just because that's talent and that's how people are. And sometimes, you know, six hours with one person does not feel like six hours with somebody else because they're dealing with different problems. They're working through different situations. They try at different rates. They're doing different stuff. Faster is not universally better. Art is not widgets in a factory. Don't make it about time. Don't even make it about effort. It doesn't matter if you got two words done in an hour and somebody else got a thousand words done in an hour. You're not competing with them. Yes, you might have an expectation that you wanted more than two words done today. I wanted a whole fucking recording done by the time I sat down to do a chat. And that just did not happen. But that's not because I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean like, oh, well, the thing sucks because it takes so long. It's because I had all these other interruptions and all these other intrusions just randomly out of the blue. Faster is not better. It's not. How do I say this? Do not look for reasons to talk shit about yourself. So many people, myself included, get ridiculously self-critical. Because they have an expectation about how things should be. I should have been done already. I should be faster. I'm having a shitty day. I must be a bad person because I'm having another bad day. Faster doesn't apply here. If you want to be a better writer, just keep writing. You will improve over time if you get support for it and education for it and encouraged for it. You will improve. 
beyond that, no one cares how long it takes. So why do you? It's something every writer has to kind of interrogate on their own. On we go. Question six. After a long day at work, I'm just too tired to write. Yeah, I get it. How am I supposed to create a writing schedule if I never write? That's a great question. And I know a lot of writers, people who say they want to write, people who say they deserve and want and need and must be published, they, they talk a lot about how great it's going to be down the road when they sell those streaming rights to Netflix or something, or when they, they adapt their thing for a screenplay, or when, you know, uh, insert famous celebrity here becomes their main character, or they sell a book deal for six books in a series or some fantasy nonsense. It comes down, though, to the fact of if you want to write, you have to write. And I understand that a lot of people have a very romantic notion of what writing time looks like. They want to be able to sit for an hour, for two hours, every Saturday, every Thursday while the kids are at school, every day they want to write with their own cup of coffee and their magic sweater and the right playlist playing and the, the, you know, the house is still and everything's full of goodness and they can just write and write and write and it's perfect. And that's, in zero ways reflective of how life is. Your writing schedule isn't going to be like a time clock at your job. It would be great if it is. And I hope one day everybody gets the ability and experience because, you know, we shed the shackles of capitalism, abandon our gods and masters, and, and realize that we have full control over our existence so that we can import things like universal basic income on our way to the abolition of finance and then we, we can just be free to make and produce art for the benefit of quality of mankind and humanity. But until we get there, um, I hope you get the ability to reach a point in your life where you can say, I have this block of free time. Here is how I you know plan on using it. But until then, for any number of reasons, yeah, you're going to end up writing in the bathroom on your phone in five-minute chunks at your day job. You're going to end up writing, you know, on the bench in your lunch break. You're going to end up writing, you know, a voice memo to yourself on your way to work, you know, walking from the train station back to your house. That's still a writing schedule just because it doesn't have the idealized Pinterest and Instagram view of things doesn't make it less of a writing schedule. So yeah, I understand being too tired to write. But if you hold yourself to some rigid idea of what a schedule is supposed to be, you will continue to never write. So don't do it. Writing in two-minute chunks, totally legit. Writing one sentence at a time, totally legit. It doesn't feel the same because we have some expectation that writing is supposed to be done in chapters and thousand words at a clip. And for some of us, that's possible because of a number of factors, but for others of us, and even for people at any time, it's just not possible. Today is not a writing day for me. Today is a recording day for me. I got plenty of other shit I want to write, though. Don't make the schedule. Don't put the schedule up on a pedestal. Don't make it this incredibly unyielding thing that you have to bend to. It bends. You don't. Write in the bathroom. Write on the phone. Dictate an audio memo to yourself. 
narrate, you know, while you're, well, not, not while you're brushing your teeth, don't talk with your mouth full, but you know, while you're sitting there and you know, you're waiting for the dishes or you've got those teeth whitening strips in and you got to wait 20 minutes or whatever, tap it out on your thumbs, man. Like writing is done in stages and steps. And sometimes it's small steps and sometimes it's big leaps. And sometimes you're fighting to get an idea out. And other times it's just a constant flood. And that variability is not a sign of your weakness or your quality or your success. It's just about the passage of time. Take every chance you can to do something and you will get where you want to go. I'm sorry that your day job sucks. I hope it gets better for you. On we go. Are there any more questions from anybody here about anything? Yes, no. Shall we keep moving? Let's keep going, shall we? Question, question seven. You're excited for the fifth season of Fargo. I am. I am. I am very excited for this, the fifth season of Fargo. If you haven't seen the trailer, uh, when we're done here, go to YouTube and, and, Go look up the, the trailer for season five Fargo. It's a great trailer. Have you seen the previous seasons and what do they do well that sets them apart from other shows? I have seen the other seasons. And while I wasn't crazy about the, the Chris rock in the past season, the other seasons, particularly the first two are incredible. Here's what they do well. That makes them very good. There is a premise in and around the concept of Fargo and in and around the idea of how a Coen Brothers story is created. And it's this idiots doing something where they're out of their depth with unforeseen consequences. And whether we take that as drama or tension or comedy or anything else, you can take just about any Coen Brothers movie and apply this format to it whether we're talking about a guy hunting down a rug with mistaken identity, whether we are looking at a screenwriter trapped in a hotel, whether we are looking at the odyssey told in the American deep South, whether we are talking about seasons of Fargo, whether we're talking about the movie Fargo, it's this idea of people getting in over their heads and not entirely being aware of the degree of their, their submersion the degree in it as to how badly they're hosed or how badly things are going and this sort of blind naivete that they can just get through it. Not out of this false nobility, this sense of like, well, I'm just a big tough guy. I'll swagger my way through it. But just this genuine sense of, oh shit, I'm in over my head and things are really bad, but I don't know what's going to happen. I better keep doing this and I'll keep making mistakes and failing forward. That's central to Fargo. It's also central to a game called Fiasco, which is a brilliant game. I think every screenwriter and, and author of anything that isn't uh, an early reader book should get into. YA writers, Fiasco is the thing for you. Um, if you're on the Discord, I'll throw some links to Fiasco stuff later. It's, it's fantastic. Fargo is 
I think one of those shows I should probably cover for Patreon now that I think about it. Fargo is absolutely one of those shows where, oh, you can take this thing apart and learn a lot. Much like we did last night with Andor. If you were uh, here yesterday or you're you're checking this out on YouTube after the fact, uh, I did a breakdown of Andor that I think will really help. Andor, although it's not about idiots making bad choices, also contains a lot of very fertile story fuel. It's worth dissecting. The fifth season of, of Fargo in particular looks very good because it tends to have characters that appear very, very polar, very, very set in their ways, and then a main character who seems to be very much at odds with that. And that's a nice source of tension and a nice kind of dichotomy. And I just like everybody in it. That's a big help for me. And I know that it's not going to be about aliens or superheroes or anything else I'm particularly fatigued with. Those are some of the things, not all the things, but some of the things. I think Fargo is something I should dive deeper into. Maybe for Patreon, maybe for the podcast, maybe for the paywall podcast. I don't quite know, but it's definitely something we're thinking about. I really appreciate this question. On we go. Question eight. Is profanity really a mark of being an amateur? Wait, there's a question in chat I want to answer. Hang on. Hold up. We'll come back to question eight. You've mentioned your enjoyment of Oppenheimer. I do. I really, really dig Oppenheimer. If you were given an unlimited budget to make the biopic of your choice, who would it be about? Oh, God. Oh, and I have to settle it on one? Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I know exactly who I would do with an unlimited budget. If it, if period pieces aren't a problem, uh, I would love a biopic about um, Roger Williams, the guy who founded the Rhode Island colony in the U.S. Yeah, or a guy named Obadiah Holmes. Uh, I think both of those guys are worth examining. If we need to do somebody modern and I get to, you know, more like post 1900, uh, I really think Tesla, uh, Nikola Tesla for good and for ill, even with the pigeon, I think Tesla is worth doing a serious biopic on. Yeah. Yeah. I do Tesla in the modern day. If I could, if I, if I didn't need to do a period piece. I would Tesla still a period piece, but I would do Tesla. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yep. Tesla. There's my answer. I'm going back to question eight. Question eight is profanity really a mark of being an amateur. This comes up on, on Twitter every now and then. And it's, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong for a number of reasons. First of all, this division about amateur versus professional it's fucking stupid because most of the time the people making this debate are themselves amateurs by their own criteria. They've only published a certain number of books. If at all, they've only been doing this a certain amount of time. They've only got a certain number of sales. They've only been regarded or reviewed at a certain degree or, or, or level. There is no distinction. There's nothing valuable in sorting the amateurs from the professionals. The most common argument for that is that a professional gets paid for writing something and an amateur has not yet been paid. 
whether we consider that publication or whether we consider that freelance writing or whether we consider that somebody gave me $2 to write a Christmas card. That's, that's all the distinction, the income, the, 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 uh, acquisition of money. Profanity by some people who apparently, if, if I'm being very honest, look and sound an awful lot like me, uh, white people, particularly older white people, particularly white people coming from a position of privilege who have never had to deal with or confront any kind of bubble they live in. Uh, they tend to get very pearl clutchy about their fucking profanity. Oh, you can't swear. That makes you appear fucking stupid or some shit. Oh, you don't want to swear. That'll turn people off. No, that will turn you off. Now, I understand that there are some religious orders, there are some, there are some philosophies that do not pro, permit or encourage profanity as a way of organizing behavior. And that's fine. I, I can respect that even though I profoundly disagree with any supernatural magic sky fairy's ability to curtail your free speech. I believe people should just be able to say the words that come out of your thoughts. But in terms of writing, uh, you can fucking curse all the fuck you want because who gives a shit if it bothers you, if your response to hearing me is to immediately turn me off and clutch your pearls. First of all, uh, if, if you've listened to anything more I've ever said anywhere, I've been cursing since about 1995 is where it really sort of started. I was still in high school and it just became this thing as a way of me expressing myself in a particular way because I didn't know how else to do it. It's not that I lacked the vocabulary to do it. It's that given my vocabulary and my ability to enunciate and feel my feelings, this was the best way to get the attention I wanted. Who gives a shit? And now I'm much older and now I'm in a far different position than I was as an abused teenager but I'll still fucking swear because this is how I sound. Granted, this is a bit more like performancey version of me, but that's because I'm, I'm talking on a live stream. You want to catch me on the phone. You want to text me. You want to schedule a meeting with me. I'll still curse, but I'll sound slightly different. It's just profanity is a part of communication. If you want to make these arbitrary bullshit rules so that other people have to fit or conform to your view of the world, you're an asshole. You're not a professional. Maybe you're a professional asshole, but it, it doesn't matter. You can be a professional writer who curses. You can be an, a yet unpaid, unpublished author who curses? If you want to police the way people communicate because it offends your fucking sensibilities, perhaps either question your sensibilities and wonder why it's such a problem to you or shut the fuck up because the world is greater than you and your opinions. You're not in charge of everyone. Let them communicate how you want. Don't, don't police that shit. 1312 person on Twitter who started this whole debate, 1312. Nobody likes cops. On we go. Question nine. How long is too long for a forward? 
you know, there's some serious debate about this, like actual scholarly academic study and debate about this, which seems weird because it's just about a forward. If you don't know what a forward is, it's a, a bunch of pages up front of a book to lay out the groundwork for what you're going to talk about going forward or coming ahead of it. Let's not use the word forward to talk about forwards, John. How long is too long? Yeah. How long is it going to take you to say the thing you want to say before you get started? That's that's how long it should be. Whether that's a page, a paragraph, a sentence, 10, cha- 10 pages, 10 chapters, you know, whole thing, whatever. That's how long it should be technically. Now, some people will tell you that your forward should be smaller or shorter than your first chapter. But those are also the same people that tell you that chapters have a certain size, which they don't. There's no reason to worry about that. The point is, it takes as long as it takes. Most people, if a foreword starts getting too long, just in general, you want to find a different way to say the thing because now you're stepping more fully into the point you're making. So a lot of people's content in their foreword becomes part of their first chapter with an edit. But there's no specific magic number that says, ah, it's a foreword. It must be five pages. Doesn't matter. It can be as long as it needs to be. I don't, much like prologues, I I think forwards need to be more framing devices than like excursions into the story itself or excursions into the text itself. And because it's a framing device, my, John's opinion, interest in this is start the ball rolling and get out of the way. And if at all possible, try and do it without a forward because most people struggle making their point in the first place. Let's not add extra steps in between to further distance people from making their point. But that's just been my experience and that's just my opinion. Overall, to answer your question, it's as long as it needs to be. Good luck. Are there any more questions about anything? Yes, I realize I am slowly losing my voice. I'm trying to stay hydrated. I still have like three hours of talking to do. I know. I know. I'm working on it. Questions? Else we will keep moving. The tea of the day. Uh, the tea of the day is is just, well, it's just Lipton. It's just like stuff I bought from the store with a coupon. It's just plain black tea. Um, I need to clear space in my tea cabinet. So I got to burn through some kind of ugh, teas. It's not bad. It's just plain. Um, Cause it's stuff I can make quickly while I'm working. It's okay. The good flavorful stuff I'm saving for later. Like this weekend, there will be much delicious green tea and red tea and black tea this week. But for now it's just kind of like, ah, store stuff. It's okay. It's doing its job of keeping me from sounding desiccated. Shall we move on? We good? More questions of more things. If you're about to ask me how Oppenheimer is going, I'm in the middle of the first recording. I'm like 51 minutes in. I still got about two hours or so to go, plus whatever other hour of stuff I want to say after the fact. But it's going. We're doing okay. We're coming out strong, swinging for the fences. On we go. Why did you not go on? 
There we go. Question 10 related back to question nine. Why do people care so much about the amateur versus professional distinction? I think it has to do with wanting to know where you fit in. I think it has a lot to do with feeling like you belong somewhere and feeling like you have a category and feeling like you have a label and feeling like you have peers that you're not alone, that you're not the only person feeling a certain way or doing a certain thing. Not so that, you know, you can be the only one who's wrong when everybody else is right, but more just that you're not doing this by yourself. And I think people care because they, they use those labels of amateur and professional because it carries some kind of assumed social clout. I'm a professional. Take me more seriously. Pay more attention to me versus an amateur is someone who doesn't know anything and therefore they're not as good as me. It's an ego stroke. And it falls apart pretty quickly when we apply it to other stuff. For instance, you're however old you are, chances are you've had multiple breakfasts in your life. Would you ever stop to think yourself a professional breakfast eater? Now, granted, nobody's ever paid you for breakfast, so we can't necessarily apply that measure of amateur versus professional, but there are other ways to measure amateur versus professional. Uh, a lot of bullshit in the, in the, in the tech bro creative effort product space is 10,000 hours. Do you think you've spent 10,000 hours doing anything? Cause I can think of one thing you've probably spent 10,000 hours doing, but we don't walk around calling ourselves professional sleepers. We make this distinction because we want hierarchy. Well, no, it's not true. We don't want hierarchy. We are conditioned, traumatized, abused, and defeated into accepting hierarchy. Our jobs, capitalism, socialization, class structure, ableism, racism, patriarchy, power dynamics, sex discrimination, gender identity, binaries, anything like that wants to create hierarchy. Who is where, who am I above, who's below me, all that stuff. We care about those things so that we feel like we have a place to fit in. We don't really do enough to stop and question any of those rankings. We don't feel very comfortable talking about them or, or acknowledging them. They make us feel bad. And we don't do enough actively to accept that in order to change a lot of them, we're going to have to get you know some dirt under our fingernails and get a little messy. But people care about that because they want to know where they fit in. The solution, the, the treatment plan, the care strategy for how to deal with amateur versus professional is to not assign weight to the label, but rather reward and support the person who's trying to staple that label to themselves. Okay, you're an amateur. I don't care at all about calling you an amateur. I just want you to get better at being a writer. Okay, you're a published author. Great. That's delightful that you've been published. That means I don't have to stop and explain to you how the process works, but I can tell you, okay, for the next book, we're going to try pushing in this direction, try expanding this way. You make it about the person, not the label, and you'll get a lot farther. But a lot of people just care about it because they've been conditioned to, because they haven't stopped to think about it, because they think it matters. It doesn't matter. 
I want more people to understand it doesn't matter. That's important to me. On we go. Question 11. Is Thanksgiving a great holiday for selling books? Uh, at the time I'm recording this, U.S. Thanksgiving is in a couple days. Is it a great holiday for selling books? No. Black Friday has been made into a day that is decent for selling books. But Thanksgiving itself is not a great day for selling books. Because it's a Thursday because it's a holiday most people don't associate with reading because it's a day where a lot of the time of day is consumed with other tasks like gathering with family. You don't want to see and cooking and enduring conversations with people who are idiots and putting up with weird relatives and feeling, you know, however you feel about it. I don't like things. The food's good in Thanksgiving, but I don't care for any of the other shit. And it doesn't occur to me to spend my day buying a book. It occurs that I should just, you know, what I'm going to do Thursday is not be near the screen. Like I'll have my phone in my pocket because I do. But beyond that, it's not a work day. So it's not a great selling day. Black Friday is made into that because it's a Friday and we can sell things. Capitalism, cha-ching, cha-ching. But don't aim for a Thanksgiving release, even if you've got Thanksgiving-themed books, because people are busy doing other stuff. So no, Thanksgiving is not a great holiday for selling books. Not in the same way that Christmas is, or um, Memorial Day, or um, Valentine's Day, things like that. Even Easter sells more books than Thanksgiving which is weird. I think it has something to do with the, like the time of year, but no Thanksgiving, not a strong sales day. On we go. Question 12. What can I do with my NaNoWriMo manuscript after November? Now I have been asked this question at different points in my life, and I have given a variety of answers, including kindling, uh, use it to line a bird cage, uh, throw it at your enemies, make a door stop. Um, you, you know, use the back of it for scratch paper. I've given a variety of answers, some serious, some not. And over the years, I like to think I've mellowed because before I used to take NaNoWriMo as a personal affront because I, I still don't think you need to do it. I don't think it does more good than it harms. I think it very much does more harm than good. But it's still, for a lot of people, their first exposure to the rigors of writing. I wish it were more rigorous. I wish it were more serious. I wish people made less of a big deal about the performance of it and more about the craft of it. But what you can do with your nano manuscript is understand that you're incomplete. You are at least 30,000 words short from 95% of all the text you can expect to publish traditionally. And at 50,000 words, the minute you attach NaNoWriMo to it, if you were going to self-publish it, the expectation is that it will be a disorganized, chaotic, under-edited, under-constructed mess because NaNoWriMo doesn't prize editing or construction. It just, you know, it prizes how quickly we can get words on a page. So what you can do with your manuscript after November is fix your shit. There's a reason why December for me is Fioshimo, fix your shit month. 
And yes, just so we're clear, Fioshima will be dominating the podcast and many streams during the course of December to help you fix your shit. Because if Nano is all about writing, which it shouldn't be, but it is, then there should be a month, an equal amount of time dedicated to making you a better writer. But what can you do? Make more notes, finish your outline, organize your ending, identify your beat structure, figure out where your act breaks are, figure out that, okay, this is my first draft, incomplete as it might be. What does my second draft start to look like? That's what you can do. Your NaNoWriMo manuscript is fuel. I used to argue that it makes great fuel to light your fireplace at the beginning of winter. It still does, but it can also be fuel to help you drive your creative fire forward. So take it apart, roll up your sleeves, and start draft two. That's what you can do with it. Question 13. I've really failed NaNoWriMo. Really? Do we need the adverb? Do we really need to modify the degree with which you have failed? Okay, I've really failed NaNoWriMo. I don't even know what that means. You, what, you didn't make 50,000 words in a month? Okay. Okay. Should I like wag a finger at you? Well, why is this a big fucking deal? How can I do better? Don't fail? Like, write more? Who gives a shit? Why is this a problem? Do, do you want like air horns? I'll give you air horns. Hey, good job. You wrote a thing. Like, what? what is it that you... You're the only one beating yourself up for failing. I don't care. Did you write? Did you write today? Did you write yesterday? Have you written recently? Have you been adding words to your word count? Then you haven't failed anything. If you haven't done that, but you've intended to, hey, guess what? Tomorrow's another day to try again. See how there's an absence of failing in this? You didn't hear air horns. I will tweak that. Because perhaps... The cable is loose because that's where the cat was sitting. I will fix that. I'll play with that later. That might be a stream thing. Anyway, anyhow, um, where was I? Right. NaNoWriMo doing better. Just grow your word count. Just grow your word count. That's the important thing. Don't make it about failure. Don't make it about this binary. I got to clear this hurdle and make this hoop. Just keep writing. That's how you can do better. That's the whole goal here. Just keep writing. Just keep writing. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm sorry you feel you failed at a thing that does not normally have a failing condition. I wish you would put that down and stop telling yourself you failed at a thing that you can't otherwise fail at. You can feel discouraged, sure. You can feel frustrated by your progress relative to the expectation you have of yourself. Fine, I wish you wouldn't do that either. But you haven't failed. No one's coming to take your keyboard away. No one's coming to yell at you. No one is telling you that you can't you know, be a writer or that you can't try again tomorrow. You don't have to give up. If you're mad that today you didn't do everything to the degree you want, try again tomorrow to just do it again. What else do you want me to tell you? Give that a try.
I hope you feel better and I hope you keep going. Are there any questions for anything about anything? And then we'll go from there. Yes? No? Shall we get out of here? Shall we return to our day? Yeah. Let's go to the outro. Now, if you haven't heard the sound effects or, or the music bed or anything, um, I don't know if my cable has died and I need to replace it. Although if that were the case, then you wouldn't hear anything. But, um, I will examine it and get back to you. But for now, I'm going to the outro. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, by the way, have a great Thanksgiving if Thanksgiving is your thing. Um, whatever it might be, I hope you find peace, joy, consider, pleasure calm. Thanks for letting me talk about NaNoWriMo and writing better and amateur and sorting your ideas out and doing this. It was really delightful. Uh, the next time I'm here in your eyes and in your ears will be grab my calendar. Where is my calendar? There is my calendar. I will be right back here for you on the 28th, the last Tuesday of the month. Until then. All power to all people. Take care of yourself. Tell somebody you love them. Tell them how you actually feel. Be vulnerable. Be brave. You're good enough to be. Keep writing. Keep creating. I will talk to you very, very soon. See you.